0: you have your Bibles today and you want to follow along, you can open up the passage we read just moments ago in the book of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. You know, one of the greatest shocks to the church in our generation is the shift in our culture from a Christian, predominantly Christian, or what I... I wouldn't even say predominantly Christian, but predominantly influenced by the church and by Christianity to one that could best be described as post-Christian. Uh, when I gave my notes to uh, the team to prepare today, the notes that you see behind me, they asked me, they said, do we have last week's notes when they read the first slide or two? I said, no, we're just doing part two of last week's sermon. But uh, uh, we're going to follow up on what we talked about last week, it's not going to be the same sermon, so don't worry. We're just going to go back over a couple of things real quick here at the beginning as we start together. But there is this great shock within Christendom right now in, in the 21st century in the United States because we have definitely moved from what once was considered a Christian culture to a post-Christian one. And the church is left in awe of this. We are, we are left shocked by this. What does this mean for us? Uh, What does the future look like? And there are a lot of folks that are really panicked because of this. Uh, Very, very, very panic-stricken, and there is a lot of fear among Christians because we have moved this direction. Uh, And so this morning, I want us to look at at what Jesus said about how we as Christians are called to be a counterculture. You know, Christianity traditionally, through through all of history, has been a countercultural movement, and that is. We are always in the minority. Even when we thought we were in the majority, we were in reality the minority. There has never been a time where the majority of people in the United States were Christian. There may have been a time when the culture was influenced greatly by Christianity. And there definitely was a time that even non-Christians would dare not cross uh, the moral boundaries which were established by the church because they wanted to keep up appearances. People at least wanted to appear to be Christian. Many folks would even attend church out of a sense of cultural responsibility. We call them cultural Christians. There are fewer of those today than at any other time probably in the last hundred years. Uh, Because it is not the thing to do today, to go to church. But for a great amount of, a great amount of time, for a great part of our history, it has been the thing to do, to go to church and to appear Christian, even if you were not one. And so a great many people did just that. They, they put on airs. They pretended to be a Christian. They would even attend church. But today the western world, the United States in particular, no longer reveres, respects, honors the God of Christianity as anything real or unique. Now let that sink in for just a minute. That's what it means to to be post-Christian. The church The Christian faith, the Christian God is no longer the driving force of culture. What God has declared to be right, righteousness according to God is no longer the driving force of who we are morally. There is no longer an actual agreed upon moral norm. Relativism is the rule of the day. People do what is right in their own eyes. That's what's happening today. They declare for themselves what is right. Not only that, they demand that you affirm what they believe is right. They demand that you affirm their rightness or what they believe to be right to be as good as your own personal rightness or what you declare for yourself to be right. There is no sense of objective truth. Christians believe in objective truth, and we believe that we're held accountable to objective truth. And I just want to define that this morning for us as we begin here. And I know I'm giving you a lot of introduction today, but I want to set a groundwork for what we're going to study in this passage of Scripture. Objective truth, as I found someone defined it this way this week, is to say that a statement is to say that a statement is objectively true means that it is true for people of all cultures, times, etc. Even if they do not know it or recognize it to be true. You know, water always freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Whether you know that or not, it doesn't matter. It is an objective fact. It always freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. People need water and air to live. That is just an objective fact fact. It's an objective truth. We take water away from you. You're going to die in about three or four days. We take air away from you. You're going to die in a quick, a whole lot quicker than that. You need water and you need air. These are illustrations of what object, what is objective truth is. What is objectively true? Subjective truth is to say that something to say that something is subjectively true means that it is true for the person making the judgment, even though it may not be true for others. For example, some of you right now, are sitting there this morning saying, it is cold in here. Some of you are wearing jackets. Others of you are saying, I'm hot. I wish they'd turn it down a little more in here. Some of you today would walk in the doors and say, you're very happy today. Things are going quite well for you. Others will walk in here today and say, it's a terrible day to be alive, but at least I'm above the ground and alive. Praise God for that, right? Those are subjective things. It's true for you in this moment because of your circumstances. It's a subjective truth. But we as Christians believe in a literal right and wrong. We believe in an objective truth as defined by God when it comes to morality. You see, some folks would say, it's okay to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's okay to to have premarital sex if you love one another and are committed to each other. Subjective truth. God says that sexuality is to be enjoyed within the commitment of a marriage between a man and a woman. Period. Objective truth. And, and that's what we believe as Christians. There is an objective truth. An objective righteousness as defined by God, and we as human beings are held accountable to what God says is right and wrong. And increasingly, the world rejects this. In particular, the Western world rejects this. The world in which we live, the United States of America, rejects this. And as a result of that, they are increasingly, more and more so all the time, growing to hate us. They are turning against us and against the morality that we espouse. They see us as bigots, as hateful, as ignorant, and even dangerous. That's what's happening in the world in which we live right now, guys. We have had it easy. I mean, we already live in in the Disney world, Disneyland of the world. Do you know that? The United States is the Disneyland of the world. We have it better here in every conceivable way than any other people on earth. You're hungry right now. You know you've got... A myriad of choices when you walk out of this door. You can go to the grocery store and find any kind of food you want to take home and cook. Or you can find any number of restaurants of ethnic varieties all within about a two-mile radius that you can sit down and enjoy. We know that we can turn on the faucet and clean water flows that we can drink and is safe for us to drink. We have in this room right now a climate-controlled atmosphere. Some of you would prefer it to be controlled differently than it is. We've already established that. But... It is climate controlled. There are people all over the world today that would give their right arm, in many cases literally, to sit where you and I sit every day and to enjoy this Disneyland all around us every day. We've got it good. But we as Christians have had it particularly good because the world, even when they have not accepted our God, have acquiesced to what we believe up to now within about the last oh couple, two or three decades. And progressively, it is getting worse, where they are turning against us. And we are panicky at this point. We're fearful. And in the process, we're showing what we're really made of. I mean, let's face the facts. It is a hard thing to see the White House decked out in rainbow colors celebrating the legalization of gay marriage, isn't it? It's hard to see major corporations champion the rights of confused people to use whatever bathroom they decide at the time is right for them. It's hard to listen to folks call us names and reject our God and look upon us as backwards and ignorant and fools. But it begs the question, how would Jesus respond to this? How are we supposed to, as followers of Jesus Christ, respond and live in this culture that is rapidly turning against the things that are most important and most dear to us? If we have a genuine faith in Christ, how do we respond to a culture that seemingly has gone haywire all around us, all within our own lifetime for many of us? See, it's happened so quick. It's left us shocked and in awe of what's going on around us. And Jesus gives us the answer in this passage of Scripture that we look at here today. If you look at chapter 5 of Matthew, you see in verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute, persecute you, and in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for He gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. You know, if if Jesus Christ was walking the earth today in 21st century America, people would think that he was completely out of his mind. Did you know that? In fact, let me just tell you something may enlighten you today. For all times, people have thought Jesus is out of his mind. And anyone that follows Jesus genuinely so people think that they are out of their mind. The people who were listening to Jesus speak this day in this passage of Scripture that we see recorded here, they thought that he was out of his mind. They thought that he was a fool. I mean, this goes against the natural man. Look, look at what he's saying here. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be like God. Be perfect like your Father in heaven. This is ridiculous. To the natural man, it is. It's absolutely ridiculous. Who wants to love their enemies? Who wants to pray for those who persecute them? Who thinks they can be like God in these matters? I mean, it flies in the face of reason, doesn't it? I mean, as I said last week, when people are persecuting us and when when they're hurting us, when they're coming against our God and saying all kinds of vile things against our Jesus, what do we want to do? We want to go John Wayne on them, don't we? I mean, we want to go ramble. We want to fight for what we believe in, for what we believe is being taken from us, for the offense that is being given to our Lord. We we grow angry. We grow hurt. And we want to respond in like fashion. Jesus says, nah, just go ahead and love them. No, don't do that. You just go ahead and love them. You just go ahead and pray for him, And we're left, even the followers of Jesus, like Peter, saying, I'm ready to pull a sword out right now, and I'm going to take the ear off of this fellow right here, the servant of the high priest who's coming to arrest you. I'm ready to take my sword out and fight for you right now, Jesus. And that's what we say in the natural man, in our flesh. We say, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to fight for this country. And you know what Jesus says? I don't care about this right now. I care about my kingdom. I care about the souls of these people. And I want them all to be saved. People have always thought Jesus was a fool. And they've always thought that those who follow Jesus are fools. Because Jesus and all who follow him march to the beat of a different drummer altogether. Let me tell you, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to march to the beat of a different drummer you're going to be different. And you're going to be seen as completely out of your mind, absolutely crazy. Jesus told us to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Be like our Father in heaven. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? Why would we do this? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. How much more can you serve? How much more can you love someone than to die for them when they are your enemy? In complete rebellion against you. Jesus did it for us. We have been forgiven for so much, for everything. How could we not love our God and serve him and do exactly what he asked us to do? And he has asked us to love those who persecute us. Love those who see themselves as our enemy. We do it because God has done it for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we also do it because it's just who we are now, right? It's proof that we are changed. It's proof that we are born again, that we would be like Jesus and that we would follow him. If you love only those who love you, big deal. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you only love those who love you, who cares? Everybody does that. If you're you're only going to be good to those who are good to you, whoopee, we're all happy for you that you have the capacity in your flesh to be good to people who are good to you. Jesus is saying here, he says, if, if you're only going to be kind to those who show you kindness, there's nothing unusual about you. You're just like the vilest sinner on earth. They do the same things. The vilest sinner in that culture was a corrupt tax collector. They hated tax collectors. They hated them. They were thieves of the worst kind. They were working for the Roman government to to obtain taxes from a people who were being occupied. They They were working against their own people for the occupiers. And not only that, but they would take more from the people than they were required to from Rome. They were thieves. They were the lowest rung of society. He says... You're worse than you' you're no better than any corrupt tax collector if you're just going to love those who love you. nothing different about you at all. You're called to more than this. You're called to be perfect as your God is perfect. Real followers of Christ are different. You ever heard that old phrase, "The proof is in the pudding, Some of you shaking your head, yes, others of you, not so much. The proof is in the pudding. Now, this was a phrase that that began to become popular in the 1920s, got real popular in the 1950s. Today, some of us have heard it. Some of us have forgotten what it means. But it, it means you can only say something is a success after it has been tried out or used. It's time for us right now to be who we say we are. It's time to try out our Christianity for some of us. It's real easy to say you're a believer when everybody around you pats you on the back and says, good for you. That's great. That's wonderful. It's another thing when it begins to cost you something and people begin to look at you as though you are a fool. The proof is in the pudding. Are you who you say you really are? Are you something beyond the natural man? Are you born again? Are you a child of the most high God? Are you filled and anointed with the Holy Spirit of a living God who exists and rewards those who diligently seek him? Are you playing games? See, there's another phrase that we throw around. It's called when the rubber meets the road. What's going to happen when the rubber meets the road? And right now, I got news for you folks, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to pretend it is not happening because of your fears, the rubber is meeting the road. In this culture, the rubber is meeting the road. Right now, right now, we are at the point at which theory or idea is put to a practical test. Your faith has to become something more than just a bunch of talk. Because your enemy is at the door, and they're not your enemy, really. They just perceive themselves as such. And they have made themselves your opposition. And the choice will be, will you love them? Will you love them? Will you serve them? Will you pray for them? Will you seek their soul for the kingdom of heaven? Will you be for them as Jesus is for them? Let me tell you how the rubber is meeting the road. A lot of you have heard this. A lot of you know this. But I want to bring some of this stuff up. I want to read a few examples to you. According to information released on May 9th of 2013 at a press conference by the family of Navy SEALs killed in August of 2011 in a, hol- a helicopter shoot down in Afghanistan, military brass prohibited any mention of the Judeo-Christian God and instead invited Muslim clerics to the funeral of fallen Navy SEAL Team 6. Heroes were then disparaged in Arabic. The, the, this cleric disparaged their memory in Arabic and damned them as infidels to Allah in Arabic. December 2009 to the present, the annual White House Christmas cards are no more. Rather than focusing on Christmas or faith, they instead highlight things such as family and dogs, The White House Christmas tree ornaments include figures of Mao Tse-sung and a drag queen now. In January 2013, Pastor Louis Giglio was pressured to remove himself from praying at the inauguration of President Obama after it is discovered that he once preached a sermon supporting the biblical definition of marriage. These are facts. This is not fantasy. In 2011, NBC Television Network twice took the words under God from the Pledge of Allegiance in its lead-up to the U.S. Open at Congressional Country Club. In 2011, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill forcing public school curriculum and textbooks to celebrate homosexuals, transgenders, and bisexuals. Catholic Charities in Illinois have now shut down its adoption agency services rather than place children with same-sex Couples as the state required. Do we respond to these things. As Jesus. Told us to do. Neil deGrasse Tyson said this on December 25th. Some time ago a couple of year or two ago. Said on this day. Long ago. A child was born who by the age of 30 would transform the world. Happy birthday, Isaac Newton, born December 25th, 1642. It's a mockery of the Christian faith. This is the world we live in. The rubber has met the road. The rubber has met the road when it comes to our government. The rubber has met the road when it comes to our educational system the rubber has met the road when it comes to the songs we listen to, the things that are on television, the movies that are out. The rubber has met the road at every turn. No matter where you want to look, the rubber has met the road. And how will we respond? Will we cower down? You know, that's what a lot of people want to do. Let's huddle up in our church and build a fort. Let's all collect food and water. For when it all comes down, we'll dig a hole in the ground and live there till they all kill themselves. Then we'll move on and rebuild, right? I mean, really the culture at large wants us to cower down and just be quiet. They want us to shut up. That's what they want us to do. Is that what we do? Do we get mad and yell and scream and fight and take up arms? Do we pull out the sword like Peter did and go after them? Is that what Jesus wants us to do? Is that what he's telling us to do here? Or do we speak our heart and the mind of Christ? Do we love those who hate us and belittle us and persecute us? Do we share the gospel with them and pray for them and refuse at all costs to hate them? The answer is pretty obvious, painful, and completely against the natural man to do, isn't it? If you want to do what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture that we must do, you have to do these things. Number one, you have to be a fool for Jesus. Be willing to be a fool for Jesus. Do not expect the world to affirm you. Do not expect the world to encourage you. Listen, we have a real warped sense about this because we had it good for so long where people collectively, whether they believed in the God of the scriptures or not. They affirmed those who did. At least with their mouth. They might have talked about us behind our back. But they wouldn't talk about us to our face. They wouldn't dare come against us. or the things we stood for. Because at the very least. It just seemed like common sense. To believe that marriage was between a man and a woman etc. So, so. We've had it good for a long time. Those days are past. And we live in a post. Christian culture. So if you're not willing to be considered a fool, you need to just go hide out somewhere. Okay? You just need to realize that that the bottom line to this is is that you have decided not to live your Christian faith, publicly at least. And I have a real hard time finding in here where anybody has the ability to be a covert believer in Jesus. So you need to get right with God or stop pretending that you are. You've got to decide that it's okay to be a fool for Jesus. The second thing is, is that you've got to begin to see unbelievers as lost and in need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, one of the problems that we have as Christians today is that we just flat out do not love the lost. Why do people disparage us? Why do people speak so horribly against the church? Because so often we have been a hateful group of people. We see them as our enemy. Listen, there is no human being on this earth that is my enemy. You say, well, that's just not true. There are people who would love to kill you, who hate Christians. Let me tell you something. They are not my enemy. They are human beings who are lost or in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are in need of the same grace and the same love that I have received from a God who exists, who sent His Son to die a bloody, cruel death for my forgiveness. That's what they need. Now, both they and I have a common enemy, and that enemy is Satan. And the spiritual powers of darkness that are at work against the souls of men and women. That are at work against our children. There's a spiritual battle going on right now. And we're here to fight it. But along the way, because we live in Disneyland, and because we've been affirmed so long, we have grown complacent. For years, there was either no need or no sense of need to preach what it meant to be in the middle of a spiritual war. And so Christians, by and large, have forgotten how to fight in a spiritual war. And that is why we don't pray. We just don't pray because we don't need him. We got all we need here. We got air conditioning, lunch is provided. We got water to drink, clothes to wear. We got everything's pretty good. We got peace. We're all right, Jesus. Occasionally, we'll pray and ask you to bless our food. And I might give you five minutes of prayer before I go to sleep just because I like you. But I don't need you. That's what we're saying when we don't pray. What we're saying is I don't really need you or anything. And it's because we don't see the war that we are living in right now. And we have ceased teaching and preaching and showing our folks how to fight a spiritual war. Paul gives a whole lot of time to this. Just look at Ephesians chapter 6. He says our battle is not against flesh and blood. And this was a man who was living in the Roman Empire who were at war with the faith that he was preaching. In fact, they took his head for it. He said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual powers and principalities and devils and thrones. These which have raised their fists to God. These who have raised themselves up against God. These spiritual powers and entities. That's... That's who we're at battle and at war with. And let me tell you something. It means prayer. It means seeking God. It means getting on our knees. It means going to God and asking Him for things that only He can do. It means praying against the the plans of the enemy. It means binding up in Jesus' name demons as they did in Luke 9. You think that's something He only gave apostles the ability to do in the first century? I read that nowhere. And so we've got demons and powers and principalities and devils and thrones that have raised their fists up against God and his people and all of the men and women and children of earth. And the Christians who are delivered from those powers and who have the authority of Christ in their mouth just sit around keeping their mouth shut, watching football. And people die all around us, going to hell. Lives destroyed all around us. Going to hell. Now I don't know a lot of details about Prince. But I know he died. And I know that he died a Jehovah witness. They're the ones who got to him. A cult has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They believe Jesus was Michael the archangel who came down and died on the cross. They have Jesus wrong. If you have Jesus wrong, you have everything wrong. I don't care what else you say, preach or teach. breaks my heart. When someone dies, we like to sit back and just think, oh, they made it. Somehow, someway, God's going to work all this out, and they got there. No one ever sits in over a casket of someone who is an enemy of God and says they're burning in hell today because they never received the grace of Jesus Christ, and it breaks my heart. No one says that. Because we like to pretend in those moments everything's going to be all right. There's no one in the United States of America, Christian or non-Christian alike, for the most part anyway, who will sets foot across the threshold of a funeral home who isn't already a universalist when they do so. Thinking somehow in the end it's just all going to work out. It doesn't just all work out. There is a God who exists. There is objective truth. There is right and wrong that is defined by an almighty God who is alive, and active in this world today, who died on a cross 2,000 years ago for the sins of those people and for our sins today. And the only way that you can escape the consequence of your sin and have eternal life with God in heaven is to confess your sin and give your life to Jesus and receive His forgiveness. Give your heart to Him. That's the gospel. And all of these spiritual forces of darkness are at work to prevent people from doing just that. And we keep our mouth shut. We have by the grace of God the privilege of storming the throne of heaven. We have by the grace and authority of Christ the privilege of binding and loosing on earth. We have the privilege by the grace and power and authority of God to bind the enemy of the soul of man. But instead, we take our eyes off of the spiritual war and put it on people and think we're at war with them. You have to stop it. If you're going to love as Jesus says love here, you've got to stop seeing people as your enemy. You have to start battling the spiritual forces of darkness and not other human beings. And the fourth thing is that we have to love and serve others as Jesus did. What is it? What is it that Jesus came to do? To be served? I mean, if anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus, right? I mean, if anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, here is God's Son, His only begotten Son. He has come here to earth. He deserves to be served if anybody does. The Scripture very clearly clearly teaches us that he did not come to be served, but to serve. How do we love people? How do I love my enemies? How do I love them? I love them by serving them. How can I make them feel that they are important? How can I help them to see that they are valued, respected, and honored? It's by giving them my life to them. How did Christ make you feel valued? He died for you. Gave his life on a cross. How did he make you feel loved? He served you unto death. Death on a bloody cruel cross. He became a curse for you. That's how he served us, guys. I mean, yeah, he washed the disciples' feet, and that's great and good. But his greatest demonstration of love, his greatest demonstration of service was on the cross. That's where he did it. Jesus is calling us now to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, a living God who takes up that living sacrifice and empowers it and infills it and indwells it with his Holy Spirit and does the miraculous, amazing things as we walk around the earth, living our life for others, serving them. too often we're looking around to see who's deserving of it. You know, during the American Revolution, there was a man in civilian clothes. He was riding around on a horse. And there was a group of soldiers at his feet that he was overseeing. Who were, they were working on a uh, uh, a little, in, in, little defensive uh, embankment there, a little thing that they were working on as they were trying to prepare for the British coming and so on and so forth. And another fellow... Rode up in, in civilian clothes as well, and he looked at what was going on here, and, and he asked the, the soldier, he said, you know, you're barking all these orders, and you're working all these men, and it's very obvious that they have more than they can handle. He's like, why, why aren't you helping them? And the man just very smugly said, well, I'm a corporal. I'm a corporal. He said, I'm, I apologize, I see. And he got off his horse, tied his horse up, went down, helped the men until they finished out their work. And after he had finished out the work, he went back up to the corporal. and said, listen, if there ever comes a time when you don't have enough men to get something done and your men are overworked, I want you to send a message to your commanding officer, George Washington, that would be me. And I'll come help you again. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? That's what Jesus did. He came out of heaven, not a horse. He rolled up his sleeves. He served us. He loved us. He demonstrated what it meant to do those things and died on a cross for us. There's no one beneath us. There's no one too far removed. There's no one so hateful and so vile that we shouldn't serve them. St. Francis of Assisi in the 14th century lived during the time of the Crusades. He looked across the field and saw a great army of Muslim people. And he loved Jesus so much and he wanted him to be saved so bad that he just up and marched across the field of battle, went across no man's land and went to the Sultan and shared the gospel of Christ with them. And you know, they were so taken aback by this that they didn't kill him. They said, this guy's so crazy. Let's just let him live and send him back. They listened to the gospel. And it said they did so, even the the, the the leader, the sultan, did so with conviction in his heart. As the Spirit of God moved. I can only imagine, I've just imagined this in my mind as I read the story. I was like, they must have just sat around and said, this guy is, I'm sure in Arabic, said this guy's, he. this is the biggest fool we've ever seen in our life. This man just marched all the way across the field and came into our tent. And is preaching the faith that we're here to destroy trying to convert us. Just send that fool on back. He's too crazy to kill. This, dead. I mean, this is a story too good to tell. We, we just send him back. That's what God's called us to be. God's called us to serve by giving our life for those who are lost so that they might be saved. And finally, the last thing is we've got to stop caring what other people think. You know, I just... Don't care. I care in the sense that I grieve for them that they are lost. Yes. But what they think of me doesn't matter. If they if they hate me, if they revile me, if they persecute me, Jesus has made very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that I am blessed and honored that they would do so. If they love me, if they like me, if they affirm me, that means they know Jesus and praise God for that. But to sit back and be offended and be hurt and be angry because of what some lost person says, we've got to stop it. We've got to stop being so self-important. We've got to stop with our offense and our narcissism somebody thinks about me doesn't matter. If they think I am a bigot, if they think I am hateful, if they think I'm out of touch, if they think I'm old-fashioned, if I, they think that I'm taking the wrong position and history will judge me for this, whatever. I mean, really, I have nothing more to say. All right. I mean, all right. You want to think that about me? Okay. You want to hate me? You want to persecute me? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. But do we enjoy it? No. Do you enjoy being persecuted. Nobody. Nobody really wants to face persecution. You think Peter wanted to be crucified upside down? I doubt that was on his top ten when that day he went to follow Jesus. I doubt it was on his list of things to do. And when they were nailing him to the cross, I doubt that he just lay there and thought, boy, this feels really good today. No. But he endured it with all joy because of his Christ. He loved his Jesus. And he embraced the suffering and considered it all joy. Every loss that he suffered, he considered to be dung in comparison to the surpassing riches. Of knowing Christ and serving Him. Do you think that Paul would be walking around the earth today, caring what anyone said about Him? Do you think Peter would? No. Let me tell you in closing today, Jesus has made so abundantly, incredibly, completely, and totally clear how we are to be the counterculture and how we are to respond to a world that increasingly hates us. People say, well, does this mean I can't defend myself if someone's raising their hand with a hammer? Go ahead and defend yourself. In the name of Jesus, defend yourself. Fine. That's not what we're talking about. People always want to bring up these things. And I always want to bring up these excuses along the way. And so, well, what about just war theory? And what about, what about this? And what about that? You know, I mean, listen, let me just tell you something. Stop with the nonsense and the excuses you want to make for yourself, okay? Stop with all that. We understand that. Someone, someone's raising a hammer to smash your head. You can defend yourself. Fine. But regardless of whether they're doing that, calling you names or anything else, love them. Bless them, pray for them, share the gospel with them, bind the demons over them, rebuke them from them, and in everything, desire their salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's making it abundantly clear, no matter what you face, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your persecution, no matter what the world may think of you, love them. Pray for them, share the gospel with them, serve them. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the proof in the pudding. That's what you do when the rubber meets the road. That's who you are more than in just what you say, but in who you are, what you do. You follow Jesus. You be perfect as our God is perfect. That verse means that you be like Jesus. And that's not just a pie in the sky, just, you know, that that's that's what we hold up here as a standard that we all aspire to. No, he said, do it. He said, do it. He didn't just hold that up there and hope someday you'll make it when you get to heaven. He says, listen, while you're walking on the earth today, you be perfect. You be holy as your God is perfect, as your God is holy. You follow Jesus. You be like him because in him and through him by the power of Christ at work within you, you can because it is Christ who works in you. To will and to act according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. You see, here's the thing we've got to understand, Christians. We've got to understand that this is not a philosophy. This is not some historical thing that we're studying every Sunday. This is a real living God we worship And His Holy Spirit is within us empowering us. And if we trust Him, lean in, rely upon Him, and stop looking at our circumstances and start trusting Him completely and totally, if we really will live by faith, then the living God will work in us to act, to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And we'll be different and we'll be like our God. And if you're not like your God, today is the day to get right with Him. And confess to Him and say, I've been depending on self. I've been giving myself excuses. I have not been following you. I've been scared to be considered a fool. I have wanted to mitigate the risk and I've wanted to mitigate my faith into such a way that I could melt into the culture and be accepted. If that's you today, then you come fall on your face before God. And you tell the Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for how I have rejected your way of doing things. I'm sorry for defining righteousness for myself. I'm sorry, Lord. Maybe you're not even a believer and you need to come here and you need to accept Christ. As your saying, say, Lord, I've been pretending for so long. I really need you. Whatever it is, then you come and do that. You come and do that today. Surrender. Give your life to Him today. You want to come here and join with us? Listen, this place and this group of believers today, we love Jesus and we are committed to following Him. Are we perfect? No, but we seek to be. And we know we can be in Christ because He is the one at work in us to willing to act according to His good pleasure. We can be obedient and we can do things His way. Even when we mess up, we confess, repent, and move on. You want to be a part of that, then you come down today too. You come down and confess that you love Jesus. You want Him and you want to be a part of this faith family. Whatever it is, we're going to have a time of invitation now. If God's ministered to your heart, do it today. Let's stand together. Let's minister to one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's love one another. And let's give to Christ what is His.